Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where you'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business-to-business meeting system. Also, make sure to donate to Extra Life. We've got a link down below in the description, or you can even join the Indie Game Business Extra Life team. That link is down in the description as well. Here we go, Indie Game Business. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all the speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. Well, it's Friday. Well, it's not Friday if you're listening to the audio podcast. It could be whatever day of the week. But what's up, everybody? My name's Indy, and the gentleman next to me is Mr. Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting, and this is Indie Game Business. Today we have Jason Sklar, and we're going to be talking about how to... How to make your freelance business a success and some other things as well. We'll be talking about UX and UI. So let's get this show going there, Jay. Oh, yeah. Jason, uh, welcome. And, and I appreciate the short notice. Jason was kind enough to hop in and, and decide to be here today with about 24 hours notice. So it wasn't completely random because you know, we had talked earlier in the week, but still short notice. And I appreciate it. Um, so let's start where where we always start tell us how you got into the industry and then walk us through your career up to this point cool yeah um well i i didn't do any of the sort of traditional ways to get into the industry at least like you know the traditional ways that people think about when they haven't been in the industry so um games were pretty far away from you know what i thought i would actually get into and it wasn't until i was 30 that i actually got into the games industry um, I decided I wanted to be an academic and I studied how judges and juries make legal decisions in complicated uh, civil and criminal cases. This was right around the time of OJ Simpson and DNA evidence. So there was a lot of that kind of like, how do people understand probabilities of random matches? And then you add in police tampering. What are your beliefs about the criminal justice system? Um, and it was really interesting and I loved it and I was fully engaged and I was working crunch hours all the time and I burned out. <laughs> so you publish papers, all this sort of stuff. And then like, what do I do? I'm, you know, 29 years old. Uh, I thought this was going to be my career. And what I did is I took some entry level jobs that were related to my skill uh, set, you know, analytical jobs, a lot of data analysis type of stuff. And I discovered actually that like UI was a thing. Uh, before I even know it was called UI or user interface, I uh, I was working in an environment where I was five years older than all the kids coming out of college right then. And they never, they were the generation who was Windows only or Mac only. They'd never had a command prompt. 
Um, and we were working on a, an operating, a timesharing operating system that was all command prompt driven. Um, and so what I did for some of these folks is I made, uh, I grabbed Calvin and Hobbes ASCII art and I made forms for them. And like Calvin would ask you like, what kind of report do you want? What's the date range and stuff like that. And then I would turn them into little scripts, right? Batch scripts that they could then run just to, you know, and, and, and I didn't know that like making people comfortable with software or making their job easier was even a thing at that point. Um, and then one of the companies that I worked with sent me out to, to go to a, the HCI conference in Seattle where, where Microsoft was having a big presence, presence obviously. And I, uh, I went to the Microsoft booth to grab a beer and there were two people in there demoing Dungeon Siege. Uh, and I heard a lot about Dungeon Siege because in addition to unplugging from grad school where I didn't have any free time, I was now spending a lot of time playing video games again while doing my day job. Uh, and they're like, hey, who are you? And I'm like, I'm this guy I burned out of grad school. And you know, and they're like, hey, we all burned out of grad school in psychology too. And we're working at Microsoft in their games usability and play test group. You should come join us. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so my start in the game industry was at 31, uh, working at Microsoft Games in their play test and usability group. Um, and we watched thousands and thousands of people play games and we took notes and we worked with the development teams. Um, and then, um, you know, from there, let me, you know, speed things up a little bit. Um, so I worked there for a bunch, uh, and I got partnered up with both the, the some of the FOSSA studios folks on Crimson Skies High Road to Revenge and some of the big, huge games folks on Rise of Nations. Uh, and those were my two sort of main signature projects that I was attached to and, and learned a lot from the actual game devs. And what I just learned is that I actually like, I liked making games with awesome people more than I liked doing user research. Uh, and so when Big Huge Games said, hey, you know, you're pretty good at like handing us this really hard to take feedback and making us figure out how to like add more work items to our schedule and do them so the game looks and works better, uh, you know, why don't you come join us? And so I did, and I became a producer for a few years and I actually learned how games were made and made games. So I did expansion packs, did the next sequel for Rise of Nations, to, which was Rise of Legends. Worked on Catan, uh, Xbox <laughs> Live, uh, and then burned out of the production route because production was just too much. Like you know how it is, and feel free to jump in. Like it's your nose is to the grind. You're always focused on the problems and having to solve the problems. Um, and I needed to get back into UX, and Catan was sort of that way. I got to design the you know uh, with Brian Reynolds, we got to design the. Uh, core mechanics, how do you play it on a console game? Uh, how do you do social interactions where people will be speaking different languages? Um, how do you make AI communicate in ways that can help people learn the game if they're playing solo? Um, how do you onboard people to a game where like they've never played a Euro game before in their lives? Those kinds of challenges were neat. And uh, that's what I wanted to get back into. And so uh, I left after Catan shortly after I helped them pitch, I helped Big Huge pitch a game that became Amalur, uh, the Reckoning game with uh, 38 Studios and all that jazz later on. Uh, but I left to join Amazon and studied social computing. How do we, I joined their community group. Um, how do we get people to write more reviews, write better reviews? How do we get more people to write reviews instead of the same 10 people writing a million each? Uh, and then how do we surface that data to people so they can make better purchasing decisions and purchase with more confidence? Um, but I miss games, so I get back into consulting. And then I worked on um, uh, a bunch of, uh, at that point, all my Microsoft games user testing training, that hadn't been implemented by other studios. 
Um, so I, um, uh, so there was room for a freelancer to come in and, you know, Activision, EA, also, you know, some of the big publishers didn't have a story to tell when it talked when it came to uh, usability and playtesting, or they had a story, but it wasn't funded well enough to get all their major titles. Uh, so I got to just parachute around and work on teams, uh, various teams. Uh, some were successful and some weren't as successful. So Tony Hawk Ride was one of those ones that was challenging uh, from a user experience perspective and pretty much every perspective. Uh, and then uh, Dragon Age Origins, which was like, hey, we're now acquired by EA and we need to like actually launch on the console, even though we never intended to launch this game on the console. <laughs> so maybe we could use some help there. Um, that's another story, but I, I totally digress on it. And so I did consulting. I liked it. Uh, then Zynga sort of came hunting. Um, and I did some consulting for Zynga and some of my friends at Big Huge Games who formed the studio and did Frontierville. Uh, I did a bunch of consulting for them. And then when I looked at the upsides of consulting at that time uh, versus taking Zynga money and working with folks I knew, um, I went Zynga. Uh, and then that imploded. Uh, and I went to Disney Mobile. Uh, and then that imploded. And I'm like, time to start consulting again. And this was like 2013, 2014. So I've been consulting for the past six years. And two years ago, uh, is when I added on a couple of partners and realized like there's just a lot of missed opportunities and it was lonely. Um, and so I found two folks, Neil Edwards and Dave Inscore, who I've worked with before, who are very different than me and provide really interesting and valuable skill sets. And I thought like a partnership would be the way to go. And it's been glorious ever since. And that's how UX is Fine was born. It's one, it's, I don't think we've had, and Dan, you may, correct me here i don't think we've had anyone on the show who didn't like start out in games yeah. but it's very possible we have because i mean that's interesting but a i lot didn't start of out the, in games who? i didn't start out in games well, you, you and i don't count uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting because a lot of the reasons that you talk about for wanting to start consulting in terms of you know like you said zynga you know, implodes at one point, Disney implodes at one point. And that's exactly why I opted 10 years ago, instead of taking that job at, at Amazon or somewhere else on the West Coast where I was interviewing, I didn't want to move my family all the way across the country and then have something like that happen. And it's like, well, shit, now I'm stuck in California. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, Given how volatile the industry is, it's it's there's a lot of people who are doing freelancing consulting. And then with all the you know pandemic going on and everybody realizing, oh wait, I can actually work from home if I want to. I don't need to be in an office. We're seeing more and more people adopt this, you know, lifestyle that you and I and, and Indy all have. And it's always just, you know, that thing of how do you grow it? Because when you first start doing it, you're usually like one foot in the consulting and one foot in the job search area because you never really know which way it's going to go. So when you started consulting, how did you get those first clients? How did yeah, you, yeah. you know, was it something you positioned yourself or? How did it get, how did you get the ball rolling? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think, you know, some of the best lessons I learned about game dev, like apply well to just about any aspect of your life and really the iterative approach and trying things, seeing what sticks and learning from it. 
uh, big, huge games was sort of like kind of that was I mean, that was their shtick. They're not the only ones. They're not the pioneers of the method. Obviously, there's a diaspora of people who emerged from, you know, and, and went on to do all sorts of different studios. And they ran them in very similar ways. The daily play test. Right. You're playing the game every day. You're making changes based on the team's feedback. Everyone matters on the team and and you're improving things. And when things you try things that maybe won't work and you just you stick with them and you don't do it willy nilly either. You know, sometimes you got to stick with something that's uncomfortable or, or seems weird uh, just to give it a, a legitimate shot. And it's, you know, that number one is being willing to iterate. And then number two, and I'm going to get into like, how did I land specific clients and stuff like that in just a sec. Uh, but number two is being realistic with yourself and, and what your situation is. So the first time I went consulting, it was me and my fiance. She wasn't even, I don't even know if she was my fiance at the time, but she was my girlfriend that we were living together. It was two of us in Seattle living in a small apartment above uh pete's uh was it pete's wines or whatever <laughs> right on east lake and the, you know our rent was like 900 a month or something between the two of us she had gigs you know it wasn't like we were you know we weren't laden with debt or anything like that it's like let's just give it a shot and see what happens i'm in seattle if i need a job i can get a job um and so it was kind of experimental at the time and you know i was just I didn't know. All I knew was, A, thankfully, I had a good network of folks who knew me um, and felt comfortable referring me on to other folks who were having problems with their games. And so that was that was a thing. And I just became a student of, you know, how do you find people who have needs and network with those folks? Um, and then, you know, try my best without a pitch deck or like any kind of business background, like figure out how to cost these things out and figure out, you know, how I'm going to like attract a client who can pay my living wage. Um, and so how I landed those first few clients, some of it was the first round was some of it was there were people I worked with before and they knew me and they knew that they needed some work done. And, um, and uh, the main thing that I, I, I wanted to build was sustainability. And so what I knew was I couldn't be like, it's Gil here. I just need one more deal to, you know, so I can beat my kids at the end of the month. Right. I wanted to use my internal contacts as a way of iterating on my process, my approach, getting some cash in the bank, obviously. Uh, but I knew that if I became comfortable with that, I would be just as dependent as I would be at a full-time job, right. On, on that relationship. And as we all know, the games industry is volatile. They might love you, but if you know, if you're going to pay a coder, you're going to pay Jason, you're going to pay a coder every time. Right. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things about, you know, being in a specialized <laughs> section of the industry, like, like I am and like you are, you don't necessarily, we're not needed all the time. <laughs> and, and you're right. It's like, if, and if we were willing to do it, that's a different thing too. Like, so I did have a producer background, uh, but what I knew is that made me miserable at my soul. Like I just wasn't fit for it to do it all the time. So it's like, how do I form my, my goal then was how do I form a game development studio with three of my friends when they don't need me, they need a business person or they need a executive producer, right? Like I could never be that fourth person in an indie startup unless I was willing to be those things. And I wasn't, I just knew that like, I just emotionally couldn't do it. Um, and so that it was depressing at the time, but once I just made that realistic assessment and said, you know, I'm never going to be that fourth person of a partner, you know, let's at least work with a bunch of these folks. The um, the realization that I had, and looking back, it's like you know, I spent the first six seven years as an agent. I should have realized that there are opportunities for business consultants, but yeah, I didn't. 
but I was actually hired as a freelance biz dev person for Adrian Crook's team who do very mm -hmm. specific free-to-play design consulting. Uh, yep. Jordan from Zynga was, was working with us at the time. And I was like, if there's a niche for that, there has to be a niche for what I do. And, and that's how I got going in there. And so it's, um, it's, it's always challenging getting that first one. Um, the other, the other big challenge and, and you and I talked about this earlier the week, how did you go about pricing your services for the first <laughs> few companies? This I got is, a yeah. couple. Yeah. I got a couple of stories to tell about that. Um, one is I just, you know, like what's the bare minimum that I need to live on. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't confident in what, what I focused on too much early on is like how much an hour do I need to charge for a, a deal that's two weeks so that I can get 10 of those a year that I can like at least live on. Right. And you're not focusing at all on, uh, on the business side of things, what they want to hear, which is what's the value that they're getting. Um, because if you're just charging on an hourly basis, you're, you're always screwing yourself because if you believe in what you do and you're good at what you do, you're providing, you know, 10 X the value that they're actually paying for, right? They're not just paying your wages, they're paying the value. And so the way I started was just like, what's the lowest I can possibly charge and still be respected um, and still just pay the bills if I get a modicum of work, right? And the two lessons that I heard from a couple of different people in terms of pricing were, one was uh, more general, which was until people start turning you down or saying, oh, and then coming back to you later and you're nervous, like, am I going to land this thing or not? And they have to come back to you later and ask for approval or whatever. Until you're doing that, you're definitely not charging enough. So stop doing that. Right. Um, and the second piece of advice, it depends totally on the market and what the market will bear and what biz dev user acquisition costs you. And so at the time I was doing the initial time I was doing smaller deals, I was doing, you know, five to $20,000 deals. Um, and um, I got, Brian Reynolds introduced me to Bob Wallace and Bob Wallace was like, he's going to give me some minutes of your time. So ask the right questions because he's a busy guy. Um, and so I explained my business to him and he's like, well, here's what you do. Uh, you talk to the people for 15 minutes. You give them a one sheet that has the three different offerings at the three different prices. And you say, call me if you want to do business, because if you spend any more than that with each person, like you're trying to woo them, you're trying to like, hey, let's do a pilot project for free or whatever. He's like, you're just wasting your time. You're spending too much money trying to get these small projects. Um, and so that, you know, it, so, you know, the general rule of how do you figure it out is you're going to start out under pricing probably just because you're nervous or whatever. And you want to see some income. You want to get some clients um, and you've got to be iterative. And then you've got to be ethical with your partners, too, because I've got legacy partners that are paying like the. The reduced rates and it's, at some point you got to set expectations with them that i'm going to have to you know jump those up at some point or whatever but um but the pricing part is hard especially if you've been beaten down by the jobs industry you know what your salary is and you got to remember that it, your wage in the jobs industry is like it's it's kind of independent of your value that you might produce as well and so that's the thing that and, and it also depends on your expertise because sometimes what the market is, the market already bears that. Kind. Like if you're an artist in a very specific area, unless you're a name, like the market dictates what you get paid. It depends on what country you live in, right? So, so are, you brought up something interesting in there and there's three tiers. So 
and, and I'll let you decide if you were to go into actually what you charge or not, but how did you, how do you break those things down in terms of the different pricing structures? It's like we have our retainer pricing and then we have our you know, developer support program that we do. We don't really have anything in the middle, but that's one of the things I'm looking at too. So, you know, how do you separate it and when it comes to service versus price and, and what's what's the bottom side of it? The so it depends, like as I've moved from like how do I just like you know do the bare minimum of work so that I can earn as much as I was earning at Amazon uh, and it's just me, like that pricing is very different and the offerings that I have are very different. Um, and that was fun to do for a couple of years. And basically that was just a matter of, you know, I'm not going to do a lot of the wire for like, you're never going to hire me for 40 hours a week. You're going to hire me from between four and eight hours a week. And I'm going to be on retainer to give you advice and consulting on a, like a high sort of expert level. Uh, I'm going to mentor some of your studio people and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to help your executives make better decisions. Right. Like, and that's the high money consulting, right? I can charge like hundreds of dollars an hour for that, for that type of thing. And I don't need to get too many of those gigs to support myself. Um, what I found, and so that that's definitely one way of doing it, especially if you've been around for a while, you've got a highly, you've got a skill that's valued. And I talk to my clients, I'm like, how, you know, especially because, you know, I'm like, sure, Microsoft and EA and all them can pay these rates and they don't bat an eye, right? But like, how am I getting my smaller developers to justify paying this stuff? So I talked to a bunch of the founders of the companies and I'm like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, $10,000 isn't that much. And the monthly burn for you for five months might be just a couple grand a month or something like that. But like you could be hiring other other talent and other folks, you know, like, you you know, it's not like you have a, you know, 10 million, 20 million, $100 million budget. And in the it, as it turns out, in the especially in the free to play world, uh, where you need to go to soft launch, you need to show, show some metrics before you can scale. It's like, they're like every $5,000 I spend on you, like the ROI in terms of my spend down the road and user acquisition and being able to scale up user acquisition. I know for a fact, you're gonna move my metrics, right? My D1 retention, the number of people getting through the funnel, the, you know, I believe that. And I and you don't have to move them that much to save me a ton of money on the back end. And so that's how, you know, that's how I, I, I attract, attach that market, which which is the people who, who are like, how can they possibly afford my rates? But yet they can, because it makes sense for them to do it and, and, and to mitigate their risk. And then the more premium clients, like the deeper pockets clients, they have other concerns sometimes too. Like they do have free to play concerns and, and business model concerns, but they also just have like, we're a brand, this is an IP, we've got another developer working on it and it's a crap show, right? They just don't know UX and we don't want, and it, it has nothing to do with the team. The teams are usually very competent, very motivated, very talented, very hardworking, right? It's nothing specifically to do with the team. It's just UX in games is a newish thing. And when you're a publisher spending a lot of money on a game, you want to make sure that that you know box is checked. Um, and so that's where you can set you can you can you can charge a lot of money there too because the publishers are paying that, not the developers. Um, and and they understand that like spending 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 thousand dollars at this point in this game is going to have a huge return on investment in terms of. Well, it's going to mitigate risk, but then it's going to have that return on investment too. So when you're looking for clients and you're doing <clears throat> outreach or, you know, we'll get into the whole attracting clients in a minute, but in terms of your targets, so do you target more of the bigger companies or some of the mid-sized or, or even the smaller 
the smaller groups who, like you said, you assume that's like, wait, you can't afford to to hire this, and you turns out they can. Where have you found that that sweet spot is in terms of companies that, or groups that are willing to and need to hire a freelancer? Yeah, it's tough because we're we're moving away from the freelancer model and we're never about butts and seats we're never about provide like being a for hire service where it's like hey i need three engineers to apply to this project or whatever um and so what's happened is we did a deliberate so just to be candid like just to show some of our strategy and we actually have uh, john kimmick who's our strategy advisor he sort of helps us look at the numbers and stuff and figure out what do we want to do and and now that we're a partnership as well we need to come to an agreement on that sort of thing and so we looked at the numbers last year. We're like, well, three of our biggest clients gave us, you know, 65 to 70% of our income. That's the first time that's ever happened. Usually it's just been like bunches of small deals. These were bunches of you know, three or four six figure deals. Um, and so strategically, what do we want to do and how do we want to grow the company? Well, the answer is the way to grow the company and be able to hire more people and build ourselves as a business is to focus on these bigger jobs. And that means you have to feed the beast, you know, find a pipeline of work of, of contracts so that you know you can you can staff all the the seeds <clears throat> working for us and then being really profitable on that type of thing and so that change you know how we sort of approached it uh in terms of so it, whereas before it was i mean i've never had a website until this last year like i've never marketed myself other than like maybe giving the occasional talk i just had a network of people who liked me and just like the flow of incoming organic was enough um that's clearly you know now now but what that did was that made it hard because sometimes we would have to be like we really like and want to work with this but it's not super profitable and what we're going to do is we're going to spend a lot of time on that and we're going to miss out on bitter, bigger and better strategic opportunities not just the fatter paycheck but like just if we want to grow the business we're we're distracting ourselves for some of this stuff and maybe we have, we're in a position where we have to turn down some of that work but it's heartbreaking because the origins of my business, right, are, yeah, yeah, it's nice to have the fatty, like I always have to try to have a big fatty, juicy publisher contract that like helps me like pay the bills and have some stability. But like I've worked with a lot of one person, two person shops on deals that are like, you know, even like 2,500 to $10,000 range. And I love doing that stuff, but, but I can't do it as much anymore. And now we're at the, the challenging part where we want to engage those folks, we want to work with them. How do we even do it in a sensible way? And, you know, how do we scale that part of stuff up? It, it, you have to have that mix, not only from a, a business point of view and, and mm -hmm. leveraging risk and everything like that. You have to have it for your own sanity, too. You know, it's, yeah. it's like I I can't run a company where I'm just like absolutely selling <laughs> solutions or something to to different developers and publishers because it would drop me nuts. You know, it's like, I, I need to be able to do a lot of different things. And that's why we do, we work with indie devs. And that's why we do things like this show. And so it is important for not only your own, your company portfolio, for lack of a better word, but for your freaking sanity too, just yeah. to, you know, mix things up and not do you know, the, the own thing. So, um, We've actually already got some questions coming in. Yeah, you want me to to break this last question? Yeah, the other yeah, question, sure. the other question you pretty much already asked, asked it was about pricing. Uh, so here we go. Uh, this one is from Herbivore. I have a question about VR UX. With so many different controllers with different affordances, should I embrace those with differences and design for each platform or try to align the UX across 
all the platforms. Uh, so how much money do you have, right? Is the number one question <laughs> and time do you have? I was actually, I was just on, um, pocket gamer Helsinki yesterday. And we, one of my questions to the group is about big screen gaming and stuff. And is like, you know, does quality ever matter for a cross platform strategy? Because, you know, do you, it, it, because you get a lift by putting the, you know, it's pretty cheap to put your game on different platforms if you don't care about quality. And the lift that you get is noticeable and substantial. You've already invested all this money in making the game, so just a little bit more to get them on the platforms, incremental revenue, or as a user acquisition strategy in terms of just like generating more buzz for your game. Um, you know, people are more likely to, the people with the phones are more likely to talk to their friends with the PCs and they'll hear about the game. So there's lots of merits to it, but but I act like but but really like what I like to do is I like to work on a quality experience. Like I want your game that runs on the Switch to feel like it was designed for the Switch, not for the PC and just jammed into the Switch, right? Um, and so I think the way I'm attacking your question there is it depends on you know who are you in this business proposition, right? Are you the person who wants to dominate and be known as the company that can you know, have a sweet experience on all of these different VR platforms? Or do you want to just like get out there known as a developer who who makes a financially successful product uh, that, that, and one of the ways to be financially successful is to make sure that you're on all the platforms, right? And they're two very different approaches. And obviously the one that, that is UX first uh, is costlier. It takes longer. It's harder to do that well. And now, so- their, their response was, sorry, how much money? Basically, no money. <laughs> So they should have said at the end of that question, you should have said for free. Right? Yeah. And that that's the, you know, that that's the gist of it, right? It's and sometimes, especially in a uh in a position that you're in right now, it's it's especially for VR where the market still is kind of, you know, you there's room to like actually make a wave or whatever, right? And so um if you want to get noticed, then you know, getting it on and getting it out, you need reach. Uh, cause there's just, no, it's not like there's one dominant platform where you're going to get all the, I mean, there is, but it's not like that's enough, right? You need to kind of have the reach of all the platforms. So the most important thing is to get it out there uh, on all the platforms. I would think at this point. Diversify. <laughs> so, and it pains me to say that as a UXer. <laughs> I know because it is, I mean, you, you, there's games that you play and you're like, this is obviously not intended to. Yeah. yeah this was I, obviously you, a mobile game that they made the, work on the PC, you know, yeah. my, my biggest bane of my existence when it comes to console gaming and, and UX is more controller layout. It's like when I go from playing a Nintendo game to an Xbox or PC or the AB buttons being opposite on oh, Nintendo my games, kids insult me to oh. death when I pick up their, I'm, I've, I've been playing on the, I've been playing on the uh, Xbox controller and they're like, help me figure out something on the PS4. And I'm like pressing the B button instead of the A button. It's like, oh my God. Like they're like, dad, dad, <laughs> do you even play games? It's like, yes, I play too many of them. That's the <laughs> problem. Yeah. So getting back to your, your clients and, and, and that sort of stuff. It's like, <clears throat> We know that when we get started doing freelancing or consulting, or at least I'll say you and I know, and Dan knows, a lot of it is is word of mouth. So talk a little bit about, you know, one, what that means, and two, how do you push, how do you encourage word of mouth marketing from your from your clients? I 
do a kind of crappy job of that in terms of, and I'm trying to do better, trying to learn more about that. Um, the biggest sort of boondoggly thing that I did every year is I made sure I went to GDC just to socialize because it's an activation thing. Um, like UX isn't always top of mind, um, but people are talking to other people all the time and problems just come up organically. And so I want to be top of mind. Um, and, but, but I want them to think of me for the right reasons, right, too. And, and so the things that stand out uh, are both trustworthiness and expertise. I mean, this is classic social psychology. How do you evaluate credibility? Uh, you know, tr how trustworthy are you know? Can I get honest feedback from this person and, and trust them to to look at what's in my best interest and help me out in a way that's sincere and will help? And expertise, like how good are they at their job? And what is the likelihood that if I spend him ten thousand dollars, I'll get you know twenty at least ten thousand in return? But most like you know, I'd like to get more than that return. Um, and so the expertise part, I think. You know, that's, you know, I can work, I've worked with game developers, I can talk to game talk, I've worked on a bunch of games. It's pretty clear, even though I haven't, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm not like the, I invented Fortnite or I invented um, GTA or whatever, right? Like, you know, I've not worked on franchises like that. I've worked on very successful franchises, but 98% of my games are no longer existing and, you know, or not, I'm just, I'm a good journeyman worker who helps provide value and mitigate risk, launch titles that you can be proud of. Um, and that's, so that's the expertise side, right? The trustworthy side is the, um, how do I treat people? Do I pre treat them with respect? Do I listen to everyone who comes to me, be it a intern or a student or a dev who's from another country who doesn't speak my, like I'm an ignorant American, I speak English. Like, so, you know, the problem isn't that they don't speak English well, the problem is I freaking only speak English. Um, you know, how do I treat all of those people as well. So you get a, you get word of mouth that way. And to me, it's a sincerity thing. It's just I am curious and I do try to make time. And so I've tried to come up with strategies to make sure that I am doing that kind of thing. And the other thing is, how do I deal with my business partners? Because I know for a fact that when I you sign me to a deal and pay me a bunch of money, odds are our game isn't going to succeed in any like huge, meaningful and epic way. That's just the nature of the business. Uh, but how do we relate to each other where I know you're the business person and you're one of your strengths other than building games is getting money to make games, right? And keep people employed here. So you do it because that's what you enjoy to do. Um, and hopefully the next game we work on together is the game that we retire on an island together and we don't ever have to work again, right? But odds are it's not gonna happen. So how do I build a sincere and trusting relationship with that person? And the answer is like really honest feedback, like, okay, I realize we only have this amount of money and this amount of time and this is probably, where you're going to be able to get and it's not where you want to be if you want to keep doing it let's do it and i've had to turn down work or stop work part way through where i big juicy contracts where it's just like you know what like i had a overseas language difference time barrier difference um different like production culture they weren't ready for an iterative approach and after a couple of weeks in and it was a juicy job very well-funded publisher um and i had to say look we're gonna get six months down the road i'm gonna have the money you're gonna be like where are the results and that's not gonna that's not gonna be a pleasant conversation. That's not the way I want you to think of me. And he that those folks there totally respect me. They hated the fact I couldn't solve the problem, but they they respected me. They refer me out to other folks. It's you know. So how do you build that trust? And and it's easy to do when you're winning, right? When you're already kind of successful. It's harder to do when like I need this job or else I can't pay my mortgage. And so you know, I also admit that part of it is you know luck based or situation based too. like it's easy for me to make this these like grand proclamations and like just be true to yourself and all that sort of stuff and for me it's been easier because i've uh i found myself in a situation where i'm not 
you know, like living month to month right now. So. That, and that does help big time, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Hey, let me let me drop in with another question from uh, John Engesser. He's on LinkedIn, and his question is: Not sure if you do much in mobile games, but how old uh, phones do you try to optimize free to play games? That's a shift in gears right there. Yeah, and that's awesome because like one of the biggest parts of UX is the top of the funnel, and it's like how does this device how does this perform on devices. Um, and in fact, oftentimes the first questions I ask mobile clients are, you know, let me see the very top of funnel in terms of like how many people are able to load the game, get into the game and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, I see you want me to address this 12% drop on the tutorial step four, but like you're losing 17% of your people right here because they can't load the game in under 20 seconds or whatever. And this very much speaks to hardware. Um, I'm not, I, usually the publisher or the developer has a sense of what phones, like what handsets they're gonna support and stuff. And it's it's the cost benefit analysis, right? It's the you know is our market going to be mostly North American or or and European, um, and you know where we know they have good cell phone connection that they're likely to be buying the newest phones and stuff like that. Um, then you know then you have a little bit more freedom in terms of like saying well we're not we're just not going to support these types of phones or what have you. But if you're highly you know you need an international market or you're planning on really launching other places, you have to be very contextually sensitive to to those areas and what kinds of phones folks are likely to have there. Um, I mean, if you're Blizzard, right? Or if you're like super well, like cause Blizzard is always, or at least, you know, when I was playing a lot more Blizzard games, they were always the, you, you, you could always know you could run a Blizzard game on no matter what you had because they <laughs> thought about that, right? Um, and when I worked at Micro on Microsoft games, we tried to do that. We had min config labs and stuff like that. And we were reasonably concerned about that sort of stuff, but not in the way that Blizzard was. Uh, like I said, I don't know if that's still to this day because I haven't played on a lower end machine in a while really to test it out. Um, but yeah, it's there's no good like stop it iOS 12 on the phone and stop it, you know, rainbow stripe unicorn poop on Android because I can't ever <laughs> remember what their the names of all their OSs were or whatever. Uh, I wish I could. Um, and and so it's, you know, the other the more important strategic thing is to like really be hand in hand with your lead dev on that and figure out what the trade-offs are um, when you make some decisions and like how hard would it be uh, if, if this game does get big and we need to go on other platforms, you know, have we totally sewn ourselves in a corner or are we, you know, able to scale um, down the road? I've got a UI UX question that's coming up partly because of what's behind me, you know, as much as, as much as we make fun of Skyrim, you know, I've got like thousands of hours in it and oh, yeah. started another playthrough. And one of the things that, you know, is absolutely, it's almost requ required at this point is for, you know, you to use the, the sky UI, which was a modded UI that came with it. You know, we, we play world of Warcraft and nobody raids with the standard, UI that comes in, in World of Warcraft. Where do you learn and iterate new aspects of user interface? And how much of that comes from 
you know, triple A games versus coming from indie games and the mod scene? Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, as I age, um, it's why it's so important for me to stay engaged with people of all ages who like all types of games. Uh, because, because sometimes the big players will like, you know, they'll spend the money on the research and the time, or they'll have like, you know, they have a research department that's found all the cool indie games that have made innovations in UX, UI. They just grab, the, like like we all do in the industry, right? We just grab what works and we, we apply it into our game. Um, but yeah, you're fooling yourself if you're not playing a wide range of games in your genre and you're hoping to to, to build on and improve the UX. In terms of Skyrim and all that sort of stuff, that's, that's a whole other talk in terms of like, um, you know, Bethsoft and all them because they're like Bethsoft's and the Bioware's the one I've been able to work on some Bioware titles, but not really so much on Bethesda titles. They're the ones that like people constantly complain about their, their UI and UX and stuff like that, but they clearly have a winning combination, right? And so it's helped me think a lot deeper about like the building that trust relationship with your users and in what context, you know, because because when I was younger and, you know, like, oh, my goodness, if you don't have good UX like, in a traditional sense of usability and stuff like that, like you're never going to have a great game. And like case in point, right, like we've got a bunch of developers who make games who you know, make UXers like myself cry um, or like, well, yeah, why wouldn't they why wouldn't they adopt the Blizzard mentality of just like we know we're going to optimize it so much, but let's just let the community take it from there kind of thing. And it's it's um it's really comes down to the culture of your company and what you believe in and what your pillars are. And you can only have three or four pillars to work on. And if one of them isn't UI UX, then, you know, spending a lot of time on that and, and, and potentially losing the magic, right? Because you're going to have to make trade-offs, you know, losing some of that magic, which maybe is what really makes your game successful and popular is, you know, that's a risk if you take on this other potential pillar of, and I'm not saying they don't take UX as a pillar. I don't want to be insulting to the company. Um, but like clearly they've got magic there, right? And you don't want to mess with that. You want to keep the if you got that magic, you want to use that magic and harness it. So how you know, getting back to the whole business of freelancing, you know, you you keep a good rapport with your clients. You know, that's one of the things that you know I always tell my team when we're working with a client as well, is you know, listen, we're the consultants, okay we're not doing the work if they hired us because they want you know our opinion and our feedback on this and we give it to them and they don't do it then there's not really a lot you know we can do and so that kind of puts you in awkward situations when you're talking about getting that good feedback and, and you know that word of mouth once you start growing how do you transition from your traditional word of mouth marketing, which is like what I know every consultant and freelancer I do, that's 90% of the, the marketing that, that gets done. What's the next step after that? When you need to yeah. bump it up a notch, where do you market your services? Well, right now we're still in that sort of hybrid place where like I am kind of still the face of UX is fine. Um, and so I have these relationships stuff because I've, I've been in a position where I've been having to harvest them over the years and I've worked in a variety of different places where Dave and Neil have uh, my other partners, they uh, they've worked more consistently um, at studios over the, over time. And so right now in terms of organics, it's like, it doesn't make as much sense for them to be reaching out and, 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 and talking to folks. Um, and, but what it means as well is that we're critically hampered by like this mug of mine, 
you know, my style of interaction um, and the way that I think about doing business, which is very limiting, right? It's been successful, but it's also limiting. And so, uh, so in terms of word of mouth, what we've got to do is we've got to do the more standard stuff. You know, we look at our, uh, at the other folks who are doing work in the area um, and, you know, how are they, because really at this stage, uh, it used to be that just developers would reach out to me and they still do. And I want that organic source. But at this stage, we kind of have to like have a more direct path to the execs and the people who are willing to cash the bigger checks. And there's a standard way to approach that in terms of, so it's word of mouth, like I want execs talking about our company, but then I need to give them consumable uh, decks and PowerPoints or case studies and stuff like that so that they can like instantly see it, see the ROI and be like, this is a smart business decision. And so, I think the word of mouth will still get you in the door because it is still a, you know, people who know people and all that sort of stuff. But the user experience of me, like my clients, my happy clients right now who want to promote me within their big publishing orgs, they're like, they mock me. They make fun of me because I don't have just a simple little deck that they can just hand off to other execs so they can understand what return they're getting on their investment of money. Um, and, you know, we should be grown up about it. And we should, you know, I, it shouldn't be just like, you got to get into a room with Jason and just talk to him, right? That's not scalable. Um, and also, like I said, I'm me and, you know, I might work really well with like X percent of prospective clients, but I'm sure there's a bunch of people who are like, who is this idiot? And like, can I please not talk to him ever again? But I do need UX work done. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that I know that struggle as well. because it, it's, <laughs> We've got to the point with the Powell group that it's like I stopped making decks years ago. Because yeah. it's like every time, you know, we had a proposal coming up, it was a different deck I had to do because no two clients are, are really the same. And now it's getting back to the point that I'm like, oh, shit, I need to make a deck. Well, and and that's, so that has been a huge improvement to our process this year. Like Dave and Neil, bless their souls. They like forced me kicking and screaming and did a lot of design work. And now actually like. Because it used to be there's, yeah, everything is a special snowflake and all that sort of stuff. But now we're more in the, like, we can customize a bit, but really, like, the the skeleton and the backbone that we believe in, we kind of, you know, other than upping the prices probably at some point soon, we believe that they make a lot of sense. And so now when it comes to just, like, yeah, someone else just needs to know about us and, and do that quick, like, do we think they got it? And is their price totally, you know, within our budget? We've got a quick turnaround on stuff like that now. And that that has been a huge improvement because that was a big drag before and some of the stuff that we're offering like when you're i'm asking you for five to ten k word of mouth might work fine we're asking for 150k uh, word of mouth ain't enough uh you know no one's gonna i mean it, well sorry that's not true if i were you know lord hootie snoot the top game designer in the industry um then yes that would work but like for me no that doesn't work <laughs> so do you do you have a is like your deck on your site or is there somewhere where folks can go and and look at it or is it one of those that you just send out via you know when someone's interested so we're gonna have two versions of that and we're working towards both because we do we our website is a good like it talks about our process and it mentions like all the fancy names of like you know big publishers and and some smaller publishers and developers that we've really liked working with over the years uh, but it doesn't give you a sense of those case studies and things. So what we want more of is case, like we want people who are interested in UX and UI to be able to look and see case studies and how we provided value for games that we can talk about. And so that's step one, right? 
And then step two will be the sort of the public deck, which is just basically our web, you know, what exists on the website, but it's something we can just send so people can pass it around as opposed to clicking on a link. I don't know if that's what people like to do. Um, and then you'll always have the sort of confidential deck that goes a little bit more into process uh, and that through word of mouth, we can talk a little bit more about some of the specific things we might have done on games that we just can't have hanging out there because no one wants to have their dirty laundry you know, out <laughs> on the web or whatever. Um, and and so we do have, have that sort of stuff. And it's the kind of thing that we want feedback on too. So it's not like we're hiding it deliberately. It's just like, it's been a process. We've got Miro boards, we've got XDs, we've got PowerPoints, we've got Google Slides. And like, I think we're finally, I think we've finally hit that point of like acceptance where it's just like, you know what? It, it, we're all, we're gonna see the flaws. We're gonna like, hate it. And it's just, it's still gotta just go out there and be there uh because we're overthinking it and you know something is better than nothing oftentimes it's yeah it's it's never gonna be perfect in your own eyes oh god no there's always gonna be something that needs to change but yeah you're right I mean, and we have partners right so we all have different like you know <laughs> what's the most important thing that we need to convey in this piece of material uh yeah so so when you when someone is, is talking to you and, and they need a pitch proposal, you know, so they can run it up the food chain. Yeah. Do you do that in document form or is that, does that go into PowerPoint? How do, how yeah. do you? So we've got some legacy issues and we've got some new processes. So the standard thing that I did, I used to call it the get to know each other package, which is now our audit package, <laughs> which is the, oh, I said get to know each other as opposed to audit because the idea was is that my business model then was I do 10 of these audits a year, three or four of those clients stick around for retainer-based consulting agreements. So let's get to know each other. And instead of doing a free one, like a lot of people, or not a lot of people, some people who are very well known even, they're like, we'll give you a day of work for free. If you like us, sign us to this deal. And I was like, I need to be paid for my work um, because I think it also devalues, the, Not, and this isn't a criticism of the other models, but like I think doing it anything for free devalues the work that you do. And I think that I was also confident enough in the process that you're going to get five to 10. If you're spending five to 10 K, you're going to get twice that at least. So I'm, at that point, it was easy for me to sell this as a get to know each other. You'll walk away with something concrete um, and, and then maybe we'll do a retainer agreement afterwards. And that was just a bullet pointed list, man. That's just like, and I still use that today. Uh, you know, here are the bullets that we talk about um, and it's very boring and bland and we're going to make a cooler version of it at some point. And then the, the the more comprehensive services that cost more, well, they get you know a little more visual love. And basically, we have templates that we do in XD, Adobe XD right now, but they can be exported to a PDF or into a slide deck or or, or whatever, super easy. And that's just we just generated um, you know templates that we can just plug in new logos and and customize it if it needs a, a little tweaking, and it's easy to just like churn those out. It's always good to know because. It there's these fundamental questions that everybody has when they first start, whether they intend to be freelancing in consulting or whether they just lost a job or just moved or what have you. And it's like, Oh shit, now I'm a, now I'm a consultant. It usually boils down to how do you price yourself? How do you find clients and how do you convey that, you know, that benefit, what you do to them? Um, one of the things that I always you know, tell folks is they're like, so what's your hourly rate? I'm like, I don't do an hourly rate. It's, it's like, you know, we do things that are, you know, 
objective based. You know, we know we want to know where you want to be in six months, that sort of thing, because some of these, you know, companies, if you if you get into that, you get then people start pushing back. It's like, well, why do you charge two fifty an hour? Jason only charges one fifty an hour. I don't know. You know, you're charging way too much to be based where you are. You know, it's it's like that. You know, yep. That, and know. yeah, and that's where it's like you know, depending on how well things are going, depends on how much BS like that you can take, right? Like you could be like, like when you're in a good spot and you're busy, it's like. Go to Jason then and save yourself a hundred bucks. <laughs> and I'd like to say that we're always in that spot, but we're not. Like you know, but 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 if what it what you need to learn is like at some point you need to pay the bill. Like you just need the money, right? And at some point you're gonna have to sacrifice, and you're gonna have to take it on the you know you're gonna have to take it, um, and you're gonna teach yourself that this is not the way I want to do business for a living, um, and you know I'm gonna find ways so that I don't have these problems anymore. But sometimes you just gotta you gotta do it, and that's why we're we're actually very transparent with our numbers in terms of how it works out, like the numbers that you can expect from each of our people and what the burn rate is of that. Um, and if you want to talk to us about the number of hours, if you think it's too many, too too few, or the rate for each hour, we're happy to talk with you about it. But like we're we're at this stage, we're not really gonna budge on that, and we try to go. You know, we're working on our qualification process. Like the reason why we need to do more marketing is that there are people out there who can't afford it, see the value in it. Uh, and we just need to make sure we're getting in front of them instead of the folks that um, that like they're in a really dire situation and they certainly could use the help, but they don't realize the investment it's going to take to get that help. Um, and, and as well, once we have more of a beast, then then it becomes interesting to think about, well, what is the lowest that we could take in times when we're, you know, when, when we have some people idling and stuff like that. But but the way I'd rather approach it is how do we make sure that we have prices set right so that like we can have. Uh, a runway and we can self-fund those debt those dips and spend that time in strategy investing in our people growing more uh you know and 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 so that we don't have to be in the business of like how do we cut it down from 150 to you know 125 or whatever it's but again a, it's like it's where you are man it's like it's it's like there's, there aren't universals right like you got to eat <laughs> and feed your kids or have house. You have to be careful about it too. And, and you know, I've been there. I've been there as well. You know, we take clients that we have to take that we don't really necessarily want to take sometimes. But you know, the mortgage is due, and you you got to eat. And so it's a it's it's one of those things that I always you know heavily caution people against. It's like yes, there are going to be the deals that you just absolutely have to take because you don't have another option. But if you go too far down that path, then you're going to get yourself in trouble when something else does come in. It's like, I've seen a lot of, you know, consultants get down and they're like, okay, well, I'll just do, um, it's easier for me to say it with, with, with a business deal than a, than a, you know, UX thing, but it's like, well, I'll take that client just on a commission. Well, you're not really getting paid on that. And so if you start spending 20, 30 hours a week on commission deals that may or may not be yielding revenue, and then someone comes to you and says, yeah, I'm going to pay your retainer or your flat figure or whatever it is. Now you don't have as much time to do that because you're already committed to all of these other things. And it's, it, it's something that you just simply have to be very, very careful on because you can get yourself in trouble 
Yeah, I don't have time. And you can be strategic as well. We're, you know, we, because like, so John Kimmick, who's our strategic advisor, he advises lots of different folks. And so we've had opportunities to do, you know, free work for a bunch of different clients. And we we're specifically not doing, we don't, we're, we're trying to get our cash flow in a way where we have a runway and all that sort of stuff. So we can, so we can choose later on pro bono. What do we want to do. I don't, I don't understand that concept. That's uh what's that? I said, what's a runway? I don't even understand that. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. But the thing is, we want to make some bets. We want to make some bets, both in terms of like, there's just developers that we're going to, that have projects that we're compelled to work on. And I want to be able to pay my people to do that work, not have them do, not to have them take on that burden. Right. So that means run, as far as I'm concerned, that means runway and that I can pay people to do the work for them. Um, and then there's other ones where they're like, you know, uh, you know, there might be up like, it, it, you know, we want to be conservative, but we want to take some risks maybe because some of these companies that, you know, that we could have done free work for are, are landing big funding rounds and we could have been their primary person to go to and spend some of that money on. Right. Um, but we certainly didn't want to spend all our time doing it, like with the right amount of time. So there's the, the feel good devs that we want to do because they just are doing awesome things. They're doing it all on their own and we love them and we want to see them succeed and help them. And then there's the other ones where it's a strategic, like we just need to take some swings because the upside of, of any one of these, if we land something like that are, are huge. Um, and so, but how do we do it in a way that, yeah, we're exactly, we're not doing all commission work all the time and doing commission work for the right customers and all that sort of stuff. And, and for me, it's really important to pay, like the people who aren't founders, they need to be paid for their work. Like as far as I'm concerned, right? So, uh, so that means I'm spending company money. I'm spending my salary and my partner's salary on a project at that point. And so, we got to make sure that that makes sense. <clears throat> well, here, here's a good question right here from uh, John Henley. How many clients <laughs> is too many clients? It depends totally on your business and your offerings and your infrastructure to support it. Because you're like we talked about word of like word of mouth for a company or something like that. Like word of mouth, especially in the small industry, is super important. And if you screw the pooch, people know about it. Um, and I've done that like over the last few years, I've definitely made a, a sort of like the, it was, you know, honest on both sides, like the both, like the deal wasn't like, it just wasn't structured in a way that we probably could have succeeded. And both sides went away. Like we spent the money and we got a good return on our investment, like a, an okay, good return. Like it wasn't a waste of money, but it definitely wasn't like the, you know, the, you know, the other, the effusive feedback that we're used to. Um, and that part of that comes from too many clients, right? Like it's just, if you don't have an infrastructure that can service that many clients to the high degree of fidelity, um, that they're all getting the UX is fine or whatever your company is experienced, then that's too many, right? And you can only learn that one way by taking that number plus one <laughs> and testing up a job. How many clients is too many clients? You'll know. Yeah, you'll know. <laughs> figure it. But it, and it is. It's, it's you know we did the very same thing several years ago. We hit that point where um, we had too many clients to at GDC, and it was a oh man, yeah, sure. And and that's and that's when you walk away and you have to you have to own up to it. And it's, you know, like I did with our clients, it's like look, we didn't do as good a job as we should have. Um, and that's my fault. We had too many clients, you know, I thought we could handle it and we couldn't. So, yeah. but yeah, the short answer is, yeah, you'll know, but you really can't until you get to that point where you have too many. And, yeah. but then so your strategic advisor sends you an email and says, how come this guy who you worked with before, uh, is now using this company to do their UX? I'm like, 
because <laughs> I suck. Like, I, you know, like I blew it. <laughs> um, so th there's a another good question in here. So if Z-Man from YouTube says, you know, this is great if you've got 20 years of experience, yeah. but what you're just getting started. It's a tough one. So there's this, this, um, it depends what really, I think at your heart, at the heart motivates you, right? If you want to just get, do good work, build up your resume so that in 20 years you can be your own boss. And it doesn't take you 20 years. Like it took me 20 years maybe, but it doesn't have to take you 20 years. Um, then what you need is you need, you know, you need to take the contract jobs. You need to take the jobs that will hire you kind of at the, at the beginning. Cause the, you know, the actual finding the jobs and the skills of that, and you need to build the reputation of being able to do the work. Cause the bottom line is they're not going to pay the money if you can't do the work and you're not proven. Right. Um, like these folks who are spending this kind of money on consultants, all they're about is like risk mitigation really in the end. Like, but yeah, they want to delight users. Yeah, they want, but, um, but really it's about risk mitigation. Can't, how do I get this thing out of out, out the gate on time where I can get a return on my investment? Um, and I'm only going to spend more money on it if I think it's going to, you know, increase my odds. Um, and so, so yeah, so when you're, when you're at the start, it's, proving yourself, and then you're evaluating each and every opportunity of, you know, does it allow me to build my skill set and what I want to do um, and get better at it so that I can build a reputation as being really awesome at this type of thing and then get noticed. And then it's, then you find better jobs. And if you decide freelancing is more what you like than working for one company that might go under the next day, uh, then, you know, you get your portfolio out and all that sort of stuff. And, and that doesn't like, we're looking for talent. We're moving people in from outside the games industry into the games industry. Sorry, I got some music in the background. I don't know if that's like the rap. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so then it's, you know, it, it, and and so then it's the, you know, how do you get yourself noticed kind of thing? Because there are folks like us who like to bring on junior people and quickly promote them to the extent that they're ready for it. Um, but if you're also just starting now and what really excites you is being an entrepreneur and running your own business and having your own you know, your success relates is so the, then you got to like look at it from a business. You got to learn the business and find out what are the the places where you can plug in um, and get noticed. And that's a totally different skill set. Um, uh, but there are a lot of more entrepreneurial folks who and, and maybe the answer is you work with me on, you know, I realize you're a go getter and, and you know, you work with me on attracting the business or something like that. And, and then you work on that side of your career. Um, but, yeah, it's getting people to pay you a lot of money to do what you do. It's like, unless you've done it for a while, they won't pay you a lot of money to do it. The most important thing is to get that first few clients and success uh -huh. stories because yeah. that's a benefit you down the road. And so how do you do it? I mean, it can be anything from, you know, going to sites like remote, uh, remotejobs.com. Um, there's one. So on our Discord server, which is just discord.gg slash indie game business, we've actually got a job board channel. And one of the uh, one of the sites that we pull from is remote game jobs. So one strategy is, is quite frequently, and, and you know, we still use it to this day. If somebody's posting for a business job, for example. You know, could you guys hear me? Email and say, "Hey, look, you know, how about hiring a consultant? You know, you know, we can do this and and that sort of stuff." Um, so, I mean, Zoom is looking for game design or even dev work. So, the first thing is, especially on game design, you're going to have to have a game you have designed to use as 
an example. And it's, yeah, it's a catch 22. And a lot of these colleges and universities like to tell you, you're going to get a job as a designer because you have a degree that says you're a designer. That's not always true. You've got to have that work that you can point to. And, and the more of that that you have, the easier it is to find stuff and the more you can charge for stuff. Uh, but it, it really comes down to making sure that you've got that track record to show that you can do what you need to do. But, you know, for, when we're out there, you know, looking for clients and, and that sort of stuff, going to job boards and seeing who's hiring is a, a good opportunity, you know, because they may be more interested in having someone with your skill set versus somebody they have in house. There, there's a lot of, of different variables, but the, the most important thing is that you have a track record that you can rely on because you've got to have that before you can really start doing a lot of consulting stuff in general. Um, all right. So if anybody else has got questions, we're coming up on, on our time here, pop them in the chat. Uh, if you're on the discord, you, know, you can DM me your questions on the discord and that'll work as well. Um, so uh, let's just talk, you know, timely stuff real quick. Uh, Xbox or PlayStation in December, Jason? I've, I've migrated over time because I was, you know, I've still got my chip from, from my Microsoft days. So, uh, but once I moved out to the East Coast and then and now that I'm, I'm not in East Coast time, it, it became harder to synchronously play with my friends back on the West Coast. Uh, and the, so the PS just kind of, you know, more emerged as a thing. You'll see uh, in my background here, I've got the PS here, the Xbox is downstairs. Um, I'm agnostic and I'm not an early adopter of any kind of tech. So I'm not, I'm not going to be a first mover. I'm not miffed that I didn't get into the pre-order for my PS5 or whatever. Um, so uh, how's that for a waffly answer? And it's not because I'm desperate for like Sony or Microsoft business. I don't want to piss one or the other off. It's like I actually... There's so many devices and so many ways to play games. Like I'm like, all right, prove it to me. Like, <laughs> let's hear what people are talking about and watch what they're playing, and then I'll make my decision. There's a, it's, it's always interesting because you know it's all speculation right sure. now, and you'll see arguments going either way. You know, and when I worked at Microsoft, even as part of that culture, like making fun of the PlayStation, like how could people possibly want it? it's inferior hardware and all? It's like. You know, it's and I, I was a professional in the industry and I was still like making judgments like that. Like, really? But that's what you know, at the end of the day, the, the core hardware only only really matters to those early adopters anyway. <laughs> but the um, the article I read, I guess it was this morning from PC Gamer was talking about the exclusives and things. And it's like, just admit that this is coming out on PC eventually because apparently one of the, the big announcements Sony had during their thing had this giant asterisk beside it that said, oh yeah, it's actually also coming to PC. Um, so, Which you know, was, like, we're reflecting on other, with uh, another Slack group that I'm on and we're reflecting on how interesting that is, right? That now exclusives are going to be on PC too. Yeah. Yep. So it's not really exclusives anymore. Um, Jason, thanks, man. I really appreciate this. You know, this is... Yeah. Um, the type of stuff that we're trying to get out there and, and educate folks on and you know, give some advice here and there. So uh, if Jason's on our Discord server, like I said, Discord yeah, yeah. GG slash Indie Game Business, I got to get him a bump up to the, um, 
Give him a bump. Oh man. The show. I don't have you tagged as that yet. Now there's gotta be like pressure to perform and be helpful uh, and responding people. And... Don't, don't get performance anxiety. That causes uh, <laughs> bad things there. That's the beauty when you've been doing this as long as, as you and I have. It's like, you know, whatever you say, just own it and people will believe it. You know, that's the um that's actually a problem too, right? Because sometimes I'm just joking around. <laughs> <laughs> No, I didn't really mean you should charge $2 million for that project. I was just joking. $2 million. Uh, yeah, so disco.gg slash Indie Game Business. And look at that. We are on Twitter and Facebook. Indie Game Business on Facebook and Business Indie on Twitter. And if you're you're probably already listening to the podcast, uh, anchor.fm slash Indie Game Business. That's where we're at. And we're raising money for kids. We're doing our first ever Extra Life Thing. So it's extra.life.org, extra-life.org slash team slash indie game business. You can donate. You can join our team. Um, awesome. Bottom line, just search for indie game business. Yeah, just type in indie game business. Yeah. All Any right. last parting words? Jason? It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm starved now. It's my lunchtime, but uh, I definitely enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to being like you know more involved. And now that I'm getting more into the Discord, more involved in the the community there that you've established. Uh, I know there's a lot of activity there, and I look forward to to jumping in and participating where I can. Awesome, man. Thanks. All right, Thanks so much. Stay All safe. Right. Have a good week. All right. Yeah, you too. Bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.